Welcome, everybody, to episode 33 of the Metabolist 2 podcast, which stars myself, Ben. And David. And I think this week we have set ourselves the task of talking about Chris Chibnall and his Doctor Who episodes in keen anticipation of the Chib taking over <laughs> from the Moth yep. um, as showrunner of our beloved show. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think it is. It's As David knows, and I guess I'll tell you as well, um, I'm temporarily separated from my um, DVD collection, but I have been able to review these episodes, and I think I've come to some in- some conclusions <laughs> that I find, that at least I find interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, And we are yeah. focusing solely on Chibnall's writing for Doctor Who. We're not looking at Torchwood, we're not looking at Broadchurch, we're not looking at the other things he's written. Nope, nope, we're staying away from those, we're staying away from his appearance on points of view. Um <laughs> Way back when, where he skewers Pip and Jane Baker. Cruelly, just takes them down. <laughs> takes them down, dressed like a nerd. Um, <laughs> takes down Pip and Jane Baker. Very I badly. can't remember if he does say, well, actually, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it comes close. It comes close. It comes close, yes. Thankfully, he's, he, he appears to have, like all of us, gotten older and, and maybe... Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, so so I guess we're going to start out with... Um, so yeah, we're not going to mention Torchwood. We're not going to mention Broadchurch. Nope. nope. Though, of course, is what's, what's interesting is that there's a stable of, of actors who um, I think he tends to work with, which is interesting. Right. But we won't mention that. Well, um, we can go- certainly, uh, if they appeared in Doctor Who, it's certainly fair game to mention that. Because yeah. I have some interesting ideas, perhaps, about his casting of the next Doctor based of some of the actors that he has previously worked with and used in Doctor Who. Exactly. I think this bears examination, I think. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so I think we're going to kick it off with, um, we're going to do it in order, right? So we're going yeah. to start with 42. 42, yes. Yes. So, so series three. We're looking at uh, what, to me, is it's actually kind of a slight TARDIS dream team, which is uh, David Tennant and Freema Ajman, who I'm very, very fond of. And I think there is an interesting theme. I, mean, I, I think broadly, I think it starts with the interests of RTD, Russell T. Davis. But I think it really continues with Chibnall. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, whether it actually, you know, Chibnall may be in some way like a, a potential heir to RTD uh, and take it kind of back to the more RTD days. But there is a, an emphasis throughout Chibnall's work. And I think here we see a very good example, which is his first work for Doctor Who, an emphasis on not kind of mining the popular culture indirectly for Mm -hmm. themes of shows, but actually directly referencing aspects of popular culture. And, of course, 42 is directly referencing 24, which was a huge show at that time. Or, I mean, obviously, there's there's always a delay of, um, you know, six months to a year or so with anything that Doctor Who does. Right. But it's basing itself off 24. It stars Michelle Collins. Um, soap actress. Who is a major, major soap opera actor, actress, um, or actor, I think we're supposed to call them nowadays. <laughs> uh, and I think we've, we've already had a discussion on this podcast, if, you, if you'd like to rewind to earlier episodes, about the differences between uh, soap operas in the UK and soap operas in the United States, mm-hmm. where uh, soap operas in the United States are, are kind of nonsense, and no, apart from old people, no one's ever heard of them. <laughs> soap operas in the UK are absolutely huge, and EastEnders is the biggest mm-hmm. one. Well, I guess Coronation Street as well. And Michelle Collins, the lead guest star of 42, was in both. 
and she still is a major a major TV star. Mm-hmm. Again, slightly cast against type here as the Captain Kath McDonnell, but slightly cast towards type because she always does play, I think, in both EastEnders and other uh, dramatic roles in the UK. She plays kind of, you know, self-sufficient women. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how much impact do you think Chibnall had on the actual casting? Do you think he wrote for certain actors in mind or... You know, we had mentioned that RTD had done comedy actor casting, soap actor casting, kind of in the vein of JNT in decades earlier, but got it right. Do you think this is more of an RTD type casting, or do you think Chibnall wrote with a certain actor in mind for the role of the captain? That's a really good question. If you you kind of fast forward to, uh, I think especially Chibnall's work, for Matt Smith and Moffat, you know, there's a very, very strong element of casting comedy actors, um, or actually just full, full stop comedians, but kind of famous actors. Mm-hmm. And actually, I mean, I think, I think it's already it's been said, and not just on this podcast, but I think in general, the influence of soap and soap writing and the kind of formats of, of UK soaps on the RTD era, mm-hmm. very, very strong. Um, I suspect, you know, and again, we, we know that RTD and Chibnall, they, they co-wrote and almost kind of co-came up with Torchwood. Right. I think they worked on this together, and I think they wrote it for Michelle Collins. I think Michelle mm-hmm. Collins was the person that, that this was written for, and my take on this is it was a joint decision that they would, you know, approach her as as the um as this uh, as this character and it's an interesting format that they did put it together with uh i i have in my notes here was this an rtd line or was this a chipno line and just the beginning where uh, the doctor is setting up martha's cell phone for universal roaming and it almost begins like a commercial but chibnall ties in the phone later when martha calls her mom calls her, calls her mother right. right and then that ties into the whole season overarching plot of vote for saxon with harold saxon Mr. saxon yeah and so that really incorporates the whole theme that rtd set up that chibnall really was Either this is RTD inserting this writing into uh, the story, and RTD was not shy about adding things to his uh, writer's stories. Yeah. yeah. Or Chibnall was working really well within the instructions or the guidance that RTD gave him to tie this together. Yeah, I wish I had my copy of A Writer's Tale, and we, I could I could go to the relevant section and see what RTD has to say about this. But um, I should ask Elliot. He, he's he's he, memorized it, <laughs> has he? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's there's some also things that are obviously that Chibnall. I kind of was reminded of the Bristol Boys, Martin and Baker, with the catchphrase with right. "Burn with me," and that reminded me of things like Eldrad must live or the yeah, yeah, contact has been made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I think I mean I think there's a kind of a goofy sort of complexity <laughs> to Chibnall's writing, which actually kind of reminds me of the, the Bristol Boys, and and actually you know the "Burn with me" thing works very well. I mean, when I watched this first run with my kids, uh, so you know my kids were kind of nine and six nine and five or so Mm. they were really frightened by this episode they found this episode very very intimidating and scary Mm -hmm. 
as it is. I mean, you know, our heroes are put in danger, not just in danger from the monsters. Um, and they're separated from the TARDIS and they're separated from one another. Absolutely. They're in airlocks about to be blown out of them. They're hurtling towards a star. Right. People are cross with them, which I think is always disturbing <laughs> on Doctor Who, especially for kind of younger kids when the Doctor is not treated well by the people that he's trying to save. And, you know, mm-hmm. of course, as usual, you know, it's, the whole thing is sold very, very well by David Tennant, who's a superb actor, and by Freema Eggerman as well, who's also a superb actor. I'm, I'm kind of less convinced by Michelle Collins, I'm afraid, and that's mainly because it's Michelle Collins <laughs> from Out of EastEnders. And, I mean, I'm sorry that, that that's what she is in my brain, because I'm sure she'd rather that she was a more flexible actress or actor than, than she is, but I just, it's... Yeah, from my perspective, where oh, yeah. I don't know her from EastEnders and stuff... She's convincing enough as the captain of a freighter, a star freighter. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I mean, just kind of rewinding back to a couple of podcasts ago, my kind of immediate kind of resonance for her as a captain of a star freighter is Earthshock. And think, oh, yes, yeah, that's a lady (laughs) captain of a star freighter. Not very convinced by that. Mm -hmm. Well, she does a lot better than Beryl Reed does. She does a lot better than Beryl Reed. Uh, She's certainly not as senior an actor as as Beryl was. I think there's a lot of emotional integrity. And I think Chimnall does a really good with just giving a little bit of details about characters that they give away in dialogue. That really helps flesh out or build real people into his scripts. And... Uh, he kind of does one-line info dumps, but they're world-building rather than right. plot-explaining. So he he has has a nice thing that Scannell says. Right as uh, Martha and the Doctor meet the crew, Scannell goes, we transport cargo across the galaxy, everything's automated, we just keep the ship space-worthy, and that line is almost ignored. It just passes in a flash, but... As an audience, you learn right away where, yep. where they are, what's going on. And then the, like the detail when, when the ship crew got drunk and they had uh, you know, pub yeah. quiz type questions to get through the airlocks. It gives the crew some dimension or some depth that right. they're really bored with space travel. And they were worried about hijackers. So they set up this elaborate right. question system that only they right. would be able to answer the questions to get through the airlocks. So I, I, he does this really nice bit of world building and character development uh, using just dialogue and I think it really helps strengthen the interdimensionality or the depth of the story. It's more than just a spaceship is crashing into the star. It's also that all these people or all these characters have a backstory. And we may not learn all of them, but the ones that we do know, they're fleshed out enough that you might start even caring about these characters. This is a very, very deep... I mean, it's not only kind of a deep understanding and obviously a deep love for kind of popular culture in terms of as it is presented. So 24 and EastEnders, obviously two incredibly strong references for this episode, but also just a kind of a deep love of popular culture as it's experienced, like the pop quiz. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... it's, uh, I, I fight... To like Chibnall, but I mean, 42 is a really good episode. It's really well written. It's really exciting. The gimmick of the, it's t- taking place in real time, works really well. It doesn't mm-hmm. jar. And that whole real time thing 
really resonates when the phone call is made to Francine, to Martha Jones's mother. Mm-hmm. That's a really nice callback to the phone call that Rose makes to her mother right. um, in the second episode of the um, uh, of the first series. End of the world. End of the world. Exactly. Um, so yeah, no uh, full marks for this one. I like this one a mm-hmm. lot. The thing that I like about Chibnall's writing here is he isn't trying to uh, mine other parts of Doctor Who history or or, or past monsters. It's something original. The idea of a sentient sun is, you know, kind of neat. The idea that the sun is fighting back, trying to get the fuel that the spaceship scooped from it is interesting. It works within the Doctor Who universe. And it kind of reminded me of the dodgy science of kill the moon. But here it works because it isn't our sun. It's a different sun. So it's Mm -hmm. plausible that out in the Doctor Who multiverse that the sun there is a sentient sun somewhere. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I think Kill the Moon probably would have worked a lot better if it was an, a different moon around a different planet. Yeah, no, I mean, the sentient sun, you know, it's all very Solaris. I mean, there's a reference and a knowledge of kind of high science fiction mm-hmm. there, which is which is pleasing. It's never going to be, you know, it's not a it's it, it's not an important in inverted commas episode of New Who. Um, but it's a very, very nice piece of 42 minutes of drama. It builds upon the season arc. It adds depth to that. It expands on the character, the relationship between Martha and her mother. It also gives depth to the guest cast characters. So I think it does really well for what it was trying to do, a mid-season story that moves the whole show along, and it's not a stinker. It's not something that you just go, ugh. No, not a stinker at all. Yeah, definitely, definitely. He writes the Doctor really well. Yeah. We'll, we'll see him writing yeah. another Doctor with the Hungry Earth, but he writes David Tennant really well. I think yeah. we'll see later that he does a really good job writing the Smith Doctor. It's You can believe the lines coming from each actor's mouth. Yeah, no, he's got a good sense of what Doctors sound like and mm-hmm. how Doctors behave. Um, and how and how and how doctors are different, which I think can be often a, a challenge with uh, with kind of guest writers. And of course, this is, this is of course the case because he's a you know he's an old school Doctor Who fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not just like a writer; he's someone who knows knows how this show works. So yeah, the one thing I wish he would have done it since he knew he had a companion running through a corridor, he should have uh, specified that. Martha switched to track shoes or something like that to have her run in high heel boots down up and down the gantry of a starship is I thought kind of cruel to the character and you could see right. in, I don't know if Fremo is actually uh, acting in the pain <laughs> or ah. you could see it in her face but it was not it wasn't comfortable for her and I was just yeah <laughs> if if writers can do something to help their female stars be a little more comfortable on set they should well, I, I, I remember reading the kind of description on set for this. It was all shot in an abandoned uh, factory, um, okay. I think in, in Swansea. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was freezing, freezing <laughs> oh, so cold. So it's opposite of what they were trying to act. The exact opposite <laughs> of what they were trying to be. I don't think it was quite the level of having to suck on ice cubes to stop your breath from... <laughs> condensing in the air but i mean i think it was that level of unpleasant cold so i think that's uh, yeah that's kind of yeah. a, it's 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 uh it's it's, it's, it's it's a credit to the actors you know that they act you know, they that could they sell, sell the, it was hot yes they, they sell the heat really really well yeah yeah and they were uh stripped down there they were in uh sleeveless shirts and whatnot so yeah yeah all, all vaselined up to look sweaty exactly all right let's move on to the 
the Matt Smith era with Rory and Amy in The Hungry Earth. The Hungry Earth. Are we going to do The Hungry Earth and Cold Blood as one single thing, or are we going to do this separately? Well, they have separate narrative styles. We can certainly talk about how they're similar, but the The Hungry Earth has its own framework, and then we have The Cold Blood, which has the narration, the voiceover from Stephen Moore. They're kind of a different narrative framing devices between the two stories, but they are meant to be seen as one story. Yeah. Which I think, okay, so here we go. Again, we have a we have a comedian, a well-known TV star, Mira Sayal, as the kind of main guest star. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the first episode, again, yeah. for British viewers, she's someone who's very well-known, again, primarily as a comedian. Yeah, she does, uh, I think, Goodness Gracious Me. Goodness is, Gracious Me. And uh, here she plays a character called Nazarene Chowdhury. Chowdhury, yep, yep. She does a wonderful job. I really think she has the charisma if Chibna was going to cast an older actor for uh, the role as a doctor. I could see Mira as the doctor. She has kind of that Uh spark. But the cliffhanger at the end of Cold Blood with Come Visit Us, I think, kind of sets up if Chibnall wanted to return to that Silurian city underground. Right, right. That uh, that could be the link. So I don't know. But, I mean, he's worked with her again in Broadchurch 2 where she played a judge. Yep. She's one of the Chibnall stable, the stable of Chibnalls. Mm-hmm. Yes, the Chib, the Chib stable. I thought he did, again, a really good job with bits of characterization, not really a lot of information, but just simple things like with Ambrose that she does meals on wheels or Moe's working on this drilling rig, but he, he bicycles to work. And just subtle things that add some depth and you kind of know a little bit about the character and you can see how Ambrose played by Nia Roberts. Right. You really see this overly protective mother really driving the plot forward. And it's you almost see the same thing earlier in 42 where the captain was the whole instigator. This whole plot is driven by her and in Hungry Earth, the whole story really is driven by Mm. Ambrose and the actions that she takes. Yeah. Well, okay, I'm (laughs) going to have to... uh, I've got a lot that I don't like about The Hungry Earth, and I really feel that the kind of the character bits, uh, you know, the kind of subtlety of the character building that you get in 42 here is just like a it's completely unsubtle it's just completely heavy-handed uh you're just trying to you have these snippets of inverted commas character that's dumped into um the plot as it wobbles along and mm. none of this is sold to me at all i don't believe this is wales i don't believe they're drilling a hole <laughs> even though we have two welsh actors as Mo and Ambrose? Exactly. I mean, it's it's completely unlike Wales. Okay. Um, and I know Wales quite well. It's not sold to me as being Wales. And a, a lot of this may not be mm-hmm. Chibnall, so this may be um, irrelevant. But I think if you have a show, um, if you have an episode that is so self-consciously delving into like a very, very important piece of Doctor mm-hmm. Who lore, which is the Silurians and, you know, what happened to the Silurians and the mystery of the Silurians. Right. You know, you're drilling holes in the earth. Right. You've also got to think about Inferno as well, which, again, is not referenced at all. And you, why should it be? But still, the redesign of the Silurians, which, again, may not have had anything to do with Chibnall, I think is nuts. Well, the question I have regarding the Silurians is, mm. do you think this is Moffat pitching 
please bring back the Silurians. Chibnall, you're the man to do it. Or do you think this is more of a Mark Gatiss approaching the showrunners with the Ice Warriors saying, look, I really like the Ice Warriors. Let's bring them back. And Moffat finally saying, yeah, okay. Yeah, I I think this is Moffat Mm -hmm. still actually in an RTD mode, which is, okay, we need to bring back, we need to run through the classic monsters and kind of bring them back in a, you know, in a modern contemporary way. Um, And my impression here is Moffat thought the Silurians are complicated, their, you know, their backstory is complicated, where they fit within the Hugh universe is complicated. I need someone who's experienced and well-versed in Who lore to to write this for me. Chibnall's my man. Mm -hmm. My impression, again, you know, instructions were delivered to include various bits of business I mean I think the whole Rory and and Amy seeing themselves older on the other side of the valley is like a were moment like Mm -hmm. what the hell was all that about completely unnecessary retconned again later on to where we actually understand what the hell's going on well the whole point I think was to show that Amy had forgotten Rory because it's a bookend so you see the two waving at the start of the hungry earth and then you only see Amy waving at the end and then Amy says something like I thought I saw somebody there for a second but I was wrong or something like that so I think it's to prove that Amy's forgotten about Rory but I wonder if this is just Moffat's writing adding this stuff in because I think oh, absolutely the, no absolutely it's, I it's, think the whole crack thing is Moffat rather than yeah Chibnall. yeah and it's and, the, and the, the the kind of seamlessness that we saw in 42 where I think it's in some ways it's relatively one can imagine that the phone calls to Martha's mother and the advance of the Saxon arc were quite possibly written by RTD, but you can't really see the joins. Mm-hmm. Or, if the, or if you can see the joins, they're absolutely deliberate because there is a jar between right. the danger that they're in in the spaceship and then the danger that actually uh, Martha's mother is back on Earth hundreds of thousands of years ago. There's a jar here between the bits that are obviously Moffat, which is cracks, mm-hmm. Amy forgetting Rory, and then the whole rest of the plot. Mm-hmm. And there's also a jar between what the showrunner wants the writer to do, which is, you know, Silurians, underground, drill, scientific project, with then Chibnall's attempts to, okay, I've got characters, I need to flesh them out, let's give them a couple of lines about their family backstory that will make them into real people. Mm -hmm. And I see them trying. For me, I think the characterizations work. I really buy Ambrose's motivations. I do understand that character... I think it's a little heavy-handed. I'm not sure I would really see her rising to the bait of Alea saying, just kill me and threatening her. I think, you're like you said, there's a lot of problems with the story. I'm not sure that it's the fault of the actors carrying it out. I think it's more the, the shortcomings come down to design whatever Moffat's production team was thinking of for the design of Silurians really let down the side and Moffat ultimately bears responsibility for that. The plot is recycled from Malcolm Hulk's The Silurian Story of 1970. So I'm not sure it really works really well. I think the Silurians probably worked best when they were buried (laughs) under uh, Wensley Moore in 1970 by the Brigadier? In Derbyshire, yeah. It was a Derbyshire? Derbyshire. Uh, yeah, Wenley Moore isn't a real place, but it was set in Derbyshire, yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, there's, I mean, the Wales thing is a nice nod. I mean, the Silurian is a, uh, the name Silurian comes from the Welsh 
Celtic tribe, the Silures, mm. um, okay. who were conquered by the Romans in you know, you know, several uh, you know, 50, 100 years or so BC. No, I didn't know that. So there's a, there's a Welsh connection <laughs> with Silurians, which is nice. But I mean, I agree with you. The whole redesign thing is, is kind of pointless. And actually, you know what? It's kind of the show admits that it's pointless by giving the Silurians masks oh, that they yeah. wear. Um, for no point kind of, at all either. <laughs> for no point at all other than the fact that the full face prosthetic makeup is so expensive and time consuming <laughs> is that you can't have it worn by every member of the cast. Mm. Therefore, they have to wear masks. You just get three of their them. Their <laughs> masks are weirdly sort of like their faces could have been. And the whole thing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And reptiles are reptiles. They don't need breasts. So why they have them, the, I don't the know. The human teeth, the human eyes, the venom frog tongue. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, the, the the tongue I like. The tongue okay. is, a, is, a, is, I think, is a nice touch. But and again, you know, I'm a fan, and you know, I like things to be the way things they are. But I think these are these are really these are kind of Star Trek creatures, you know. Mm, yes. And, and by Star Trek, I mean it's just a person with some green paint slapped on them, and then a wobbly forehead, and that makes an alien. Mm-hmm. Even if they bothered to do the third eye, I mean, the third eye in the original Silurians is such a wonderful, off-the-wall, 1970s kind of, you know, late hippie concept. Yep. And it, it just works so well to make these creatures alien. And it would have been very, very easy to give our new Silurians, ladies, ladies that they are, for <laughs> no really apparent reason, to give them a third eye. I mean, that would have been great, and that would have made me happy. But I, I just don't buy them. I'm mm-hmm. afraid I just don't buy them. And much, much in the same way that I don't actually buy the... And this... Again, I'm going off the subject of something that's Chibnall's fault. I don't buy the the Hungry Earth part. I mean, it really uncomfortably reminded me of the unconvincing Hungry Earth of, um, of Frontios, where what's going on? There's just some dirt on the floor of the studio <laughs> that the people are writhing around in. And again, you know, criticizing Who for its effects is like an easy target. Right. But I think what New Who has tried to learn and very often does very well is it knows what its limitations are and doesn't try to do things that can't be done and i think it fails here there's two bits of writing that i really didn't buy of chibnall and first off was amy as negotiator on behalf of all humanity to negotiate with this uh, silurian judge that stephen mord played i didn't buy that amy would have the chops or it was even within her character to do that kind of negotiation. Now, mm-hmm. Nazarene, yes, I can believe it. She has a little more gravitas and a little more experience and a little more curiosity just for wanting to go along with Matt Smith and the TARDIS down into the Silurian underground. I think she could pull it off a little more. I think sticking Amy in there was, well, Amy's the lead companion and the lead companion has to have some agency and why not have amy do it but it just doesn't ring true to me for the amy character and to me that's a showrunner i think that's something the showrunner has maybe forced on the writer here Mm. i mean it just it just doesn't ring true at Mm -hmm. all to me yeah the other piece that i didn't really like is the whole magic wand of the doctor being able to disable the silurian guns when you point to the sonic screwdriver being overused or used incorrectly, zapping all the guns and making them non-functional and the doctor threatening ResTac with the sonic screwdriver saying it's a deadly device, 
I felt it was really unimaginative writing for the Doctor Who. Maybe there was a better way to get out with all the weapons other than the Doctor suddenly having the magic wand and being able to disable all the weapons. It uh, didn't really work for me. And I didn't like the the overarching narration framing of Cold Blood that he had. I don't think that worked either. Cold Blood worked slightly better for me as an episode once we were kind of out of the pretending to we were in Wales, even though we're kind of, we're kind of actually on. <laughs> they actually kind of were in Wales, though, weren't they? I know they actually were in Wales. It just didn't like... I mean, it's, what's the point in being in Wales and it, and it not being Welsh? No, I've never been in Wales. So what didn't seem like Wales <sighs> to you? I mean, Wales is a country of mines, right? right? And we know that. <laughs> green death. <laughs> because, of, because of the green death. You know, there's an automatic potential to build in, you know, pre-existing ideas about Wales. Okay, you know, why wasn't this a mine? You know, mm-hmm. why are they drilling here? The, the church, you know, which could have been a chapel rather than a church. Mm. The graveyard, again, it's... it's, it's Just didn't it ring was, true. It just didn't ring true. And again, I'm not asking for everyone to, you know, walk around like the Green Death, like pretending they're in Wales. Even, again, <laughs> also, they actually were in Wales in, the, in, the, in that one as well. But, you know, if you're going to be self-consciously in Wales, let's be in Wales. Let's have some Welsh people in the cast for a change. <laughs> well, they did. <laughs> the two, uh, Nia Roberts and the actor who played Mo, Alan Raglan are both Welsh actors. It didn't really convince me as being Welsh, I'm afraid. So anyway, okay. there you go. Um, so cold blood. So we're away from Wales. We're underground. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's a willing suspension of disbelief here that the Solurians, as well as completely changing their appearance, have moved on mm-hmm. from kind of living in uh, an underground base, something that mm-hmm. one might understand a bit like a kind of a nuclear bunker or something something that you might build if your planet was going right. to be uh, if you saw a, it was it was potentially going to be uh, hit by a massive asteroid um, something you'd, you'd build quickly right. and kind of counter that threat anyway the Solarians have kind of abandoned that concept and now live in vast underground cities but they're all dormant they're all <laughs> dormant in uh, some way so if you have if you kind of willingly suspend your disbelief for that one, the kind of running around the underground city I quite liked. I like Stephen Moore. He's Marvin the Paranoid Android from Out of Hitchhikers. That's cool to have great comedy character actor with a lot of gravitas, you know, being the senior Silurian. The Silurians seem to have lost, though, their... Uh, they were... Uh, you know, I... Doctor and the Silurians is one of my very favourite Pertwee episodes. And the Silurians are such a wonderful threat because they, unlike most aliens, and all aliens in Doctor Who, you know, despise and hate the human race and want to destroy humans. And it's, it's that, that's mm-hmm. a given. But the Silurians actually have a good reason for wanting to do that to humans. Mm. The, again, in Cold Blood, we, we kind of throttle back from that. And we kind of neuter their right to kind of their own self-determination and their uh, their dislike and kind of fear of humans is something that's logical. Uh, and we don't really mm-hmm. have this. And uh, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it's, it doesn't... As I said, I mean, I enjoy the kind of action elements of this, which I think work pretty well. Mm-hmm. But again, the plot is... is uh, it just doesn't do the the return of the Silurians justice in my opinion mm-hmm. well before we move on I want to um, two bits of writing that I think Chibnall did that I really think were good I like that 
the doctor apologized to the young boy, Elliot, for taking his eyes off him and allowing him to be captured by the Silurians. I thought that was a really nice, uh, subtle touch and adds character and likability to the Matt Smith portrayal of the doctor. And I like when Nazreen decided to stay with Tony and her explanation to the doctor saying, I don't want to go. I got what I was digging for and I can't leave when I just found it. And you may be thinking that, is she talking about what's at the center of the earth or what's underneath the earth? But it also has a double meaning that she found, you know, her relationship with Tony. And I think Chibnall is really trying to flesh out the characters of Nazreen, Tony, and the others. And he may have been struggling with, you know, the Moffat mandate of bringing back the Silurians and stuff, but I think it worked pretty well given the all the other bits that he was trying to juggle in that story, at least with those characters. Yeah, and I think there's just too much for him to juggle in this. I think in contrast to 42, there's too much to get done in this two-parter. You've got to reintroduce the, the Silurians. You've got to make that work. You've got to have characters that function. Mm-hmm. You've got to do the whole crack thing. Uh, you've got to have Rory die. Right. It's, there's just too much stuff going on. I, I had a mm-hmm. big hope for... For cold blood, that it would solve what is to me, you know, an interesting mystery of the Doctor Who universe is what happened to the Silurians, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, definitively give us some kind of satisfying answer of why don't we see them ever again? We follow the, the the human race, you know, millions and millions of years into the future, but the species that existed on planet Earth before humans evolved, we never see them again. And that's a that's a kind of central mystery. And I was really hoping that the show would address that in some sort of way that was satisfying. But it doesn't. I mean, it addresses it, but it's certainly not in a satisfying way. Well, with Chibnall becoming showrunner, we just might see it. Because he brings back the Silurians again in his next story that he writes, The Dinosaurs in a Spaceship. A Silurian story without ah, Silurians. There you go. Exactly. The Dinosaurs in a Spaceship. What do we think? A totally bonkers concept. And... This is one of my high points of this series. I really quite liked the dinosaurs on the spaceship. I really, really liked it. And at the time it was broadcast, I know there was some backlash and fandom against the ending, but I think it's an earned ending. And I think it is well put together. And I like the characters that uh, Chibnall introduces from uh, Nefertiti, from John Riddell, and I like Mark Williams' portrayal of Brian Brian Williams, uh, Rory's dad. This is a question for you, David, but I think it's a question for our other American fans. Had you been aware of Mark Williams before Dinosaurs in a Spaceship? Absolutely not. So Mark Williams is, again, huge comedian in the UK, best known for The Fast Show, which is an absolutely key text in the development of mm-hmm. uh, the comedy sketch show mm-hmm. in the UK. If you haven't watched The Fast Show, I would absolutely recommend it. It's genius. Mm-hmm. And Brian Williams, uh, sorry, Brian Williams, <laughs> Mark Williams, his, his character is called Brian Williams. Mark Williams is one of the incredibly funny actors and comedians who was one of the people who came up with The Fast Show. And again, it's a little bit jarring because he has a lot of the ticks that right. he uses to create comedy mm-hmm. of the characters he plays in the fast show are some of the ticks that he uses to create the character of Brian Williams. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a jar there. I'm also going to ask you, David Mitchell and Robert Webb, who play the robots, yep. obviously the main characters in Peep Show. 
another absolutely seminal British comedy series um, about a decade or so later than The Fast Show. Mm -hmm. But uh, David Mitchell certainly is now a, a huge cultural figure in the UK. And certainly in, when was this, 2012, uh, when this was made, both him and Robert Webb were top of their game, both mm -hmm. being in in the in in Peep Show, but also had they had their own comedy sketch show called um, the Mitchell Mitchell and Webb Look, I think it was called. Were you aware of either of them? Nah, nope, 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 not at all. No. Um, so again, it's a little bit sense. So again, even though is... they were just voices, and you didn't actually see those two faces. It was enough that their voices were familiar enough? I can remember this being trailed to me as, and guess who's the voices of the robots? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, um. Oh, definitely. I did pick up on that marketing. Yeah, it's Jeremy and Mark out of a peep show. Mm -hmm. So, again, unfortunately, when, when you set that up, you expect the robots to be some kind of fully realized comedy term. Well, they did. They which did the, try. Which they, which they, they try. They try. They mm -hmm. absolutely try. But I get the slight feeling, and I think this is where, I think this may be even more of a Chibnall thing than it is a Moffat thing. I get the slight feeling that we're into fan casting here. Hmm. So Yeah, um, again, I don't know how much Chibnall's influence would be on the casting. I, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I would bet you any money you like that Chibnall is a fan of The Fast Show, <laughs> and I bet you any money you like he's a fan of Peep Show. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I'm, you know, if he's sitting in the room with the showrunner, think, okay, who do you want? Who do you think we should cast right. for these? Okay. He's going like, well, we should get Mark Williams. He'd be totally brilliant because, you know, he plays that same character on The Far Show, who's just like Brian. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be amazing if we got the, the most important comedy double act in the UK right now from Peep Show? They could be the robots. Mm -hmm. and there's, there's a slight. So anyway, and I, I actually, I mean, given kind of, you know, Chibnall's form and his love of and use of popular culture in a fan way mm -hmm. i think he's something i think there's something to do here okay over and above that um i actually also really enjoyed dinosaurs <laughs> in a spaceship again it's a really good example of who always coming late to the party um i can't remember what date when snakes on a plane was released um <laughs> let me just uh, hang on um, yes, yeah, Stakes on a Plane was 2006, so we're a full six years late to <laughs> something on a something else as being a joke. But that's, right. I think, you know, a funny thing that Doctor mm -hmm. Who likes to do. It's always late. The dinosaurs are well realized. Very well, very, very well done. Yeah, which is, you know, which is difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, if you forget that his characters, there's ticks that reference back to past show characters. Mark Williams does a wonderful job as Rory's dad, a very kind of well, warm performance. See, I'm not familiar at all with his performance on that show. So to me, it seemed to work really well. And I liked, does. I liked uh, Chibnall's writing for him. Yeah. Where, you know, after he's been teleported down to the engine rooms, which are on the beach with the pterodactyls flying above, Brian's kind of freaking out where he says, you know, ah, well, yes, well, thank you, Arthur C. Clarke, teleport. Obviously, I mean, <laughs> we're on a spaceship of dinosaurs. Why wouldn't there be a teleport? In fact, why don't we just teleport now? And the, and the doctor goes, well, is he okay? And, and Rory goes, no, he just hates traveling. And he only really likes traveling, going down to like the paper shop and playing golf. I mean, and there's a wonderful kind of simplicity to the performance, which is mm -hmm. which is entirely in keeping with, um, with Arthur Darville's performance as Rory. Um, yes. I mean, you can totally believe mm -hmm. that Rory is the son of Brian. You can see a little bit of tension between the father and the son just a little bit later in that scene where... 
Brian pulls out the digging tool, the uh, the trowel, and he goes, and Rory goes, you just had that on you? And Brian goes, of course, what sort of man doesn't carry a trowel? Put it on your Christmas list. And then Rory goes, dad, I'm 30 years old, or I don't have Christmas list. And the doc goes, I do, you know, and I think it's really good characterization. I have a Christmas list. Yeah, I think it's a really good characterization. I really like the writing. Yeah. You could see potentially what Chibnall would do if he had the crowded TARDIS. Yes. Because he split the team up into we have Amy being the proxy doctor leading Nefertiti and John Riddell out as her companions. And I think Chibnall is trying to do the Moffat styled snappy coupling dialogue and I think he does a really good job with it. I wouldn't want to have a whole series of this kind of snappy reportee, but I think it works really well in small doses. Really appropriate for this kind of view. Right, and it is... Slightly kind of, silly, I mean, well, not slightly silly, very silly episode. Mm-hmm. And But I think it really, like you said, it really works for this particular episode. I like the heist building, the doctor building the team, picking up, Nefertiti and the big game African game hunter Graves. right I think Rianne Steele as Nefertiti does an amazing job I really totally bought her as Nefertiti and would really like to see her return to the scene or both both John Riddell and Nefertiti return or the doctor catch up with them yeah uh I think it was also interesting that we had the uh Indian space agency in there and Chibnall's just with uh, Nazarene uh, with Mira Sael in the previous episode and then we have the Indian Space Agency I wonder will we see British Indians get their due more in the Chibnall era with writing and acting and maybe even the lead or companion character roles I think that's entirely possible actually Mm -hmm. yeah no that's a good point Mm -hmm. I'm just going to point quickly to Rupert Graves, who is an actor who we don't see nearly enough of. A very charismatic role as the Mr. Innuendo, I think Amy calls him. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he, it's interesting. He doesn't really play very well mm-hmm. in terms of his scripting as an Edwardian explorer. It's pretty much paid for laughs. But what's interesting, of course, is Rupert Graves is primarily known for playing Edwardian characters. Mm-hmm. So we completely he's, we completely <laughs> accept him as being Edwardian because that's what Rupert Graves does. Mm-hmm. Well, note of course that Rupert Graves' most famous role currently is as, is as Inspector Lestrade in Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I don't know whether this is pre... I think this is roughly contemporary with Sherlock, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, it is contemporary. At least one series of Sherlock. Twitter, yeah, so whether, whether, whether this brought his attention to to Moffat or, or, or vice versa. I'd also, I think we have to point out David Bradley, um, who mm, is, our, is our villain here, was, of course, a pretty good William Hartnell, mm-hmm. but also, importantly, was a main character in Broadchurch, which was, I think, Chibnall was working on Broadchurch <laughs> at this particular point. I think he writes Nefertiti really well. She demands, when she hears that Solomon wants her, she demands that Amy teleport her to be brought before Solomon. She makes her own choice to turn herself over to Solomon. She she says, I am not your possession now, nor I will ever be. And I think Chibnall does a really good job writing for this strong female character. And I really think it stands out, especially when compared to, say, a character like River Song. Yeah, and I think the strength in the characterization of Amy is a strength that comes from the character that we know that she is. One could rewind back to 
our comments on Cold Blood, where we have Amy being, you know, she's kind of playing a strong character. She's doing a strong character thing, mm-hmm. i.e. being the negotiator, but that doesn't really come from the character that we know her to be. In mm-hmm. Dinosaurs and the Spaceship, I think her agency in this episode it really comes from her growth as yes. um, a character, and it feels yes, real, and, and it makes and her, her travels with the doctor. Yeah, makes her a real person uh, mm-hmm. in a way that actually Cold Blood it felt like. Why are they? It why was they, too why? early. It was too early in her time with the doctor. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely, we all. I think. I think we like dinosaurs in a spaceship. This is one of my yep. five star stories of the Moffat era. Before we move on, I just want to note that. I really like that as we're dropping Brian off, he asks for a small favor, and that's just to see the Earth from outer space. And then you find out in the next story, The Power of Three, (laughs) that he's become a world traveler. Yeah, he's also been changed by Mm -hmm. his travels with the Doctor. Mm -hmm. What is your take on The Power of Three? Mm, let, Let down by the editing at the end, I think, is probably the worst thing because... Uh, spoiler, the doctor rescues Rory and Brian from this uh, spaceship, but there's other humans on the spaceship, and we don't ever find out what happens to them. And I think it's the same sort of editing problem that we saw with, with the, the pirates. Curse, curse of the Black Spot. Sort yep. of like this was poorly edited. Uh, <laughs> people just aren't paying attention. I mean, I think this is when Moffat is trying to write and develop Sherlock at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are taking their their eyes off the ball for me uh, the uh, it's an interesting concept the slow the slow invasion as the, the slow invasion. calls it you know we've talked about monster of the week mm-hmm. for me power of the three is kind of invasion of the week mm-hmm. it's like how are we going to invade the earth differently because we need to have a threat right because what we're most interested in here is the characters and their movement through you know our kind of overarching arc of the series right rather than this threat of an invasion by some black boxes or whatever the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, it's it's good. Uh, I mean, I like- it's it's very interesting that uh, how Chibnall writes the doctors being bored, being domesticized, being stuck with Amy and Rory in their slow lifestyle. Yep. I think he sets up the whole that they're getting tired of traveling with the doctor. I think it works really well i think some of the writing is cute where the doctor gets a says something like a oh my a kiss from lethbridge stewart well that's a new one <laughs> and it's great and let's just sidebar it's wonderful to have a lethbridge stewart back in charge of unit again yes yes that's that's terrifically exciting for fans <laughs> and oh, obviously we'll, we'll see a lot more of Gemma redgrave who is mm-hmm. awesome and her character, Kate Lethbridge-Stewart, or Kate Stewart, mm-hmm. or whatever she calls herself, is also awesome. So mm-hmm. I'm very happy to have that kind of written written mm-hmm. in and become you know part of mm-hmm. canon. Yeah, and there's some nice dialogue lines where the very beginning where Rory says, talking to Amy and say, we have two lives, real life and doctor life. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good characterization of it. Right. And then there's a really nice scene towards the end where Amy's trying to, I think, trying to say goodbye to the doctor. And the doctor is constantly coming back to Amy and Rory, and he's explaining because this is the first face I saw, and you know you're seared into my heart, Amelia. Right. And I'm always running towards you and Rory before you fade from me. Yeah, I think Chibnall really does those quiet moments really well. I think that's a really nice touch. 
I like his characters that he added. I think just showing that how much in demand Rory was at the hospital, that they wanted to work him work in full time, adds dimension to even Rory's character, even this late in Rory's time with the Doctor. And just even in the, his previous episode with Dinosaur and Spaceships, that Rory was able to do first aid for his dad, and he was able to show off and earn some respect from his dad, saying, see, how a, see what a great nurse I am. So right. It's Chibnall following what this character is and giving him something to do that works for his character. And I think it just really encapsulates kind of the strengths of characterization that Chibnall, if given time, can do really well. Yeah. And I think I think Chibnall's, Chibnall's challenge, the challenge of the <laughs> Chibnall, will be to bring back the accuracy of character that mm-hmm. we, I think we've missed in the high-speed, retcon, kind of fan-driven um, Moffat-era writing. Well, we can't make the mistake. You know, Chibnall definitely is a fan, so we will have a fan in charge of the show and a fan writing, but it's a, I, Chibnall is a very different type of fan than Stephen Moffat is. very, very different kind of fan, and I think where, where I felt he's kind of failed in getting all the fan stuff in and the plot stuff in and the character stuff in, in cold blood and the hungry earth. I think, you know, he succeeded for me in dinosaurs on a spaceship. I think he's struggling here. And the reason why he's struggling in power of three is that the whole point of power three is the characters and the threat of this slow invasion really doesn't feel like a threat at all. Even though, you know, if you've got someone of the kind of barking madness of Stephen Burkoff as your villain, um, <laughs> he still isn't sold really right. as, as a threat. I think it's interesting that we've got Alan Sugar and Brian Cox involved. Oh, it's, it's good. Well, they're fans. <laughs> it's a real kind of callback to the RTD era, you know, mm-hmm. where we had these celebrities would come on and play themselves little cameos and i think in some ways this was an attempt to do kind of an rtd style invasion Mm. uh, episode which Mm -hmm. i i don't really feel came off very well i'm really hoping we don't have any more invasions of modern earth because well i don't think they work very well well i good luck with that one because i'm sure (laughs) we're sure we're gonna have at least one in the next the next 50 years of doctor Mm -hmm. who Uh, So I'm wondering if you saw the P.S., the coda that Chibnall wrote that they never filmed, but they did do a little animation with Arthur Darville reading a letter back to his father that was delivered by their adopted son. Did you see that by chance? Um, You know, I don't think I saw it, but I think. Was it also, did they also do it as a a comic strip for Doctor Who magazine as well? Uh, They may have. I don't know for certain. I'm pretty sure that's how I saw it. But anyway, yes, there is a coda. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that added more emotional impact of the departure of Amy and Rory from the series than did the Moffat-written Angels Take Manhattan, where Amy and Rory actually leave. I think there was something hollow or lacking impact or oomph in that show and i think it really hit home with the letter being delivered by rory and amy's adoptive son to mm-hmm. brian williams at rory and amy's house just it's rory's letter goodbye to his dad and it was kind of sad it could have been just the music and the way they put it together right but it really again i think shows the impact 
of the characterization or the feeling, the emotional integrity that Chimnall has the potential of delivering to Doctor Who. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think there's hope here. There's um, <laughs> hope. I mean, it makes it sound like we're kind of like living in some kind of horrible dark age. Um, I'm, I think I think Chibnall, you know, if, he's, if they give him the time and the kind of higher ups at the BBC don't threaten him and pressure him and kind of mm-hmm. let him just let him do his work. And I think, you know, the BBC is a very different place to work in than the than what he's been doing in, in terms of Broadchurch, which is of course mm-hmm. ITV and independent television production, not a BBC right. production. Right. Uh, I think this could be this could be good. This could be good. We could be seeing something yep. pretty good in, in twenty eighteen. Yep, I am looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward to Moffat's final year. I really think he's relaxed some and has nothing more to prove and I think he's out to have fun. I do think the trailer's a little ominous with uh, Bill willing to die for the doctor so i think we're setting ourselves up for something but maybe she uh, get killed off in the first episode or something well like that who knows yeah i don't no, think I don't that's going to so. happen, gonna happen <laughs> but we'll find out very shortly another, another month, month or, or so. so i think it's just kind of six weeks yeah it's it's it's, it's exciting mm-hmm. yeah so chibnall yeah good stuff Cool. All right, so close us out here. Okay. You've been listening to episode 33 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I've been David. And I've been Ben. And have a good evening. Have a very chibnall, have a very chibnall evening. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, as a number two, at gmail.com, or on Twitter at metabilis2, and again, that's a number two. Hope to hear from you. Bye.